Hello, David, and welcome to Skills for Mars. How are you? Glad to be hosting you. Hello, hello. Nice to to be in your in your show. After our uh, preliminary discussion, it's good that we're finally doing this. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm very, very thrilled to be talking with you because you've been called Young Lead of the Year, uh, Forbes 30 Under 30, a social innovator. So how does it feel to have such an impact? Uh, I definitely think there's plenty of more impact to, to be had, but uh, definitely I was proactive enough until this uh, this age uh, that I have to to be as uh, in, involved in, in society, in my community, as much as possible. So I guess the sort of uh, rewards you mentioned and, and, and sort of titles or, or uh, awards in general came as a result of my involvement. Naturally, it was not something I was looking for and uh, came naturally after my, my effort in this direction. Which is what I find impressive because uh, nowadays I feel that most people are, are looking for these awards, right, from companies to just individuals, whereas you've just uh, you've just received them. So could you please introduce yourself and tell us maybe a bit about your career and your journey so far so you can get to these uh, wonderful rewards? Um, so David, again, uh, it's my name. It's uh, um, I have a, a, a pretty like everybody, I think, a pretty complex and long history already because of the, the fast-paced life we live in nowadays. But to start from the beginning, I was born in Transylvania, Romania, where I spent the first 19 years of my life, being involved as much as possible from a young age in my community, volunteering and still volunteering even now. Uh, and I know as a little uh, parantes, you know, some people think that volunteering stops when you graduate and when you go into the line of work. For me, it's just part of my daily life and it's something I do with pleasure. Uh, I have an educational background in, in business and management with, with a focus in marketing and communications. I did most of my education, higher education abroad, Scotland, France, and very recently in, in Belgium, where I added this other public policy um, focus area into my educational background. And if there would be one word to characterize my both educational background and work experience would be communications. Because despite uh, working across different sectors and different companies and, and, and organizations, I was mostly working in roles that involved my either online, offline, written, uh, spoken communication skills as, as one really uh, skill that was prevalent in all these positions. So I think I'm yeah happy to be here and communicate with you and your audience as well to kind of close the loop in this little presentation of mine. And I guess that's wonderful, right, to have a communicator on a podcast. Uh, yeah. David, let's start with something that is very interesting because a lot of people are shouting right now that um, you need internships for various ages so people can get the right experience and work. But the path you took was was mostly volunteering and you're con continuing to do that. Did that help your career or and how? I think volunteering is the best uh, place to, to gather experience at a young age and actually at Pretty much all ages, some sort of experience. But initially, when it, when you're young, there's less opportunities for work, especially if you're coming from from countries which are still developing, in a sense, like like our home country, Romania. So volunteering was the chance to learn some skills which otherwise the the educational environment was not offering me. Even now, um, I'm I'm working for for a few years, but still with my with my volunteer work, where I manage in one of the NGOs I'm involved in around. 35 young professionals, highly ambitious, highly, um, highly uh, skilled in their fields. It's definitely 
much more challenging than what they've done in terms of work. I've also managed to work, I think, 15, 20 people in previous roles. But again, the sort of a group I manage now, it's, it's definitely a group of elite young individuals. So I'm gaining this leadership experience, again, from my volunteer work uh, earlier than I would probably otherwise from my like full-time work. So, so definitely advisable, especially if you're a young person at the beginning of his or her career. How do you get into these volunteering jobs? Uh, do, do they usually require experience, the ones that, that you take on? Or you just apply and uh, make a business case out of it, a pitch? I mean, you, start, you have to start somewhere. So I, I started like any other volunteer by just uh, pitching my enthusiasm and energy, which I, I like to think I still have as much as I, I, I had even in high school. So I'm still really involved, uh, as I previously mentioned. But afterwards, after you gain experience in a few NGOs, uh, especially if they're, let's say, recognizable worlds across the world, like ISEC or Rotaract, NGOs, which I was or still am part of, uh, it helps because then when you transition to other NGOs, you, you have a relevant experience potentially for them. And uh, yeah, now I'm, I'm in a leadership role in an NGO, partly also because of my, my experience of activism and volunteering at an early age, but also because other skills that I developed over the years, which are also some, some of them developed in the line of work. So it's a mixture of things. But you usually have to be proactive at an early age to start looking for these uh, volunteering gigs, as I call them. I wouldn't call them jobs, volunteering gigs, to, to start somewhere and get gather these kind of uh, experiences early on so you can build upon them and then have a leadership role in one of these NGOs. When you started volunteering and uh, going to, to all of these schools abroad, did you think your career will turn up like this? Did it just happen? Did you plan for it? I, I never planned things to the detail uh, as much as maybe sometimes I do have this tendency. I did try to have a few ideas, but it was mostly uh, uh, intuition that guided me in, in the sense. I knew I wanted to study abroad. I knew I wanted to do something practical, so I did business. I saw the marketing area as an area which some of my skills would fit well in, uh, and uh, I went for it. I didn't know exactly where I'm going to end up working afterwards. Uh, you know, I, I quit the full-time job to to do the the, the the role I had at the United Nations, which was a, a young leader role, a youth role, it was not a paid role. I, so I quit the full-time job to do it, knowing in a sense that I want to follow a passion for diplomacy, which I had from a year, young age. That led to a job at Google without me planning this. I think nobody could think, uh, a, a, in a sense, almost like a volunteer role at the United Nations, uh, working with young people on sustainability could be actually relevant for, for Google uh, as an experience. But this was exactly what they were looking for when they gave me the, the role of uh, coordinating the digital skills workshop or Grow with Google program in Romania. And yeah, as, as Steve Jobs used to say, you cannot connect the dots looking forward, you can only connect them looking backward. And as much as you have a few guiding lights or a few guiding points, everything else usually connects eventually. David, how do you build impact? Because wherever you've started working and whichever group and community you, you joined, you started having and making an impact. How do you nurture that? And how do you make it stick? And how do you, yeah. I think it's, there's no recipe for it. Depends a lot on the group you're involved in. I definitely think I could do a much better job in some groups that I'm even currently part of. Than, than I, so I, I always strive for more. Uh, let's say in the experiences I had in which the impact was in line with my expectations, which are usually quite high, were situations in which it was a mixture of my positive energy and my energy in general for doing things, um, gelling really well with the people involved in the project as well. You know, in some cases, my my energy uh, doesn't go as well with, with the group, so it's, it's harder to 
coalesce people around this, uh, you know, ambition of mine to 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 have impact. Otherwise, it works perfectly fine, and we were actually working together as a co- cohesive group. And I think this group and teamwork component is the essential part. And if you have a, uh, if you find or if you find yourself um, accidentally or by chance in a group of of well-intended people who have similar intentions, positive intentions. Usually that's when the, the biggest impact comes, because as much as I have this bundle of energy, uh, which I like to use as in all, as you mentioned, all the groups I'm part of, the, the most impact I had is when other people are, are of similar energies and similar positive vibes. Uh, and that's when the impact is 10x more than if it's just a couple of the people in the group. So I think, yeah, teamwork is the secret for big impact. Teamwork or leadership? You've just talked to me about the experience that you're gaining now in, uh, in leadership. It's, it's teamwork because I think leadership, it's, it's about teamwork, first of all. I mean, a great leader, it's not uh, somebody who just has all the skills to be the leader and, and does the job for the team. It's still the team together with the leader who has to do the job. I do believe a lot, in, especially now after having experience in which I try different forms of leadership, the micromanager, the macro manager, sort of, or, or the macro leader, if I can, yeah, I don't want to go into the leadership manager debate. I definitely realized that lead, leading from from the from the back of the team is the best way to lead, uh, and when needed, when when the stakes are high and when the the sort of a uh, uh, there's a need for it, leading from the front, but not at all times, because then you just get people used to ah, you know, David or somebody else is always taking this and uh, doing this for us. It's good for the people to to know that they they have an impact themselves and only step up properly and lead from the front when there's this sort of a clear need. Of, of, of leadership. So having a mixture of leading from behind, leading from the front, I think it's ideal. Is this ideal for the generation you are leading as well? I grew up with, with other generations, right? Uh, baby boomers, Gen X and, and so on. But you are dealing with the current generation, which it is said that is very different in terms of uh, requirements from leadership, from teamwork, from companies, from, from society in general. Tell me a bit about that. I definitely I cannot compare since I haven't, um, let's say, lived through your generation as much as uh, as you have. So it's hard for me to exactly know how it would be. And I did manage mostly millennials, which are the same generation as I am. Uh, but I can definitely tell you from what I read or what I heard that it's it's definitely more difficult to manage a group of, especially if they're, uh, as the group I manage now with, with the Global Shapers, a group of highly ambitious, highly competent young individuals, because they, they don't take mistakes lightly from a leader. You know, they're like they're going to text you, going to tell you in your face that hey, you're not doing this right, which I guess other generations might be not as used to. If you're, you know, in the past, leadership was especially in Romania was seen as something like oh, you're the leader, we respect you regardless, which is not great. I mean, obviously this is part of our communist past. It's not necessarily a legacy we should be proud of. But now with the new generation, especially the the ones that I mentioned that I also had the chance, Romanians and others who, who to study abroad and to do other things. They do tax you if you're a leader who doesn't, or, or you know, who doesn't do his or her job properly. So uh, I think definitely it's it's much more difficult because you have to adapt, and also the sort of uh, personalities uh, require different types of leadership as well. Some require a bit of push and shove; others want you to just empower them and they they run the show. So it's it's really difficult, I think, to adapt, and uh, it's always a challenge to to stay calm, regardless of you know the sort of uh, different challenges that arise uh, in, in in such a diverse ambitious team. Would you say that it's uh, at some point good to have all of the management skills and uh, typologies required and then to be able to shift between them? Not only one or two, there are four or five right right, right now. Would it, would it help to build 
on all of them. Some of them are easier to to um, uh, develop than others. Some of them have more say, experience. I would say the ideal is not even just the leadership styles, it's the personality itself. I'm lucky enough to come off as an extrovert now, but I used to be an introvert growing up. So it helps me tremendously in any situation because I kind of spot the introverts and extroverts having both sides in me, in a sense. So um, and this is probably more helpful for me than any sort of leadership trick I have by just spotting the different types of personalities. If we, if it's superficial, if, if, if you allow me to be superficial enough to just say introverts and extroverts, obviously there's much more, many more nuances to it. But these are two helpful initial starting points because you obviously have to take an extrovert completely different from you would approach an introvert in a team. And as I said, the push and shove thing works for an introvert, but then an extrovert would be like, back off, I want to be empowered. So this is a really useful skill. And yeah, then of course, leadership styles as well. It's it's definitely not good to just have one. Uh, it just doesn't work. You know, if it, it would push off people who are tremendously valuable, potentially, just because you're maybe of a leadership style that doesn't work with them. So you have to adapt. I think leaders have to be adaptable these days to both their teams and the environments in which they work in. Yeah, and I think it's not valid only for leadership. It's valid for uh, the other skills as well. And uh, doing, as as you just said, trying and testing various options and trying to see, hey, micromanagement works or not, uh, macro management. And it's the same with skills, just experimenting a bit and understanding what, what works and what not and gaining that, that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a bit, you've, you've worked in business, but you are in love with diplomacy. And then you've used this, it's you all in all the jobs that you had you somehow use this what's what's the purpose do you want to work in diplomacy and if yes what what are you trying to do mm, i think love for diplomacy is, is maybe um, it's more melan- melancholy for diplomacy because the way i understood it growing up was a bit different than what it actually is at least according to my experience at the un and in other areas but I definitely think I want to work at the um, at the crossroads of sectors, and I, I really like a concept that the Harvard Business Review published a few years ago about tri-sector leadership. So I believe in, a, in the concept of being a leader or, or or having experience in leadership in the public, private, and NGO sector. Uh, Obama had this, you know, to a certain degree, because he worked in a law firm, he worked in you know as a community leader, and then he became a president so in the public sector. Um, and having these three types of leadership is super needed nowadays because you do have to engage as a leader, even if it's a leader of an NGO or in a company, with all these three sectors. Having at least an experience in each of them allows you to be able to better adapt and to deliver, obviously, on your KPIs when needed, if it's if we're speaking about the job. So tri-sector leadership is what I try to do, regardless if it's just diplomacy or public service, in a sense, with business. And being ready to work in any of these three sectors helps me to be adaptable. So... Again, that's, I think, a, a, a skill I'm trying to always develop. And I think this is something that I would advise uh, even everyone to do. Uh, the people that I've met which had this tri-sector experience were just amazing people with an amazing experience that could shift and adapt so quickly and could see the world through such different lenses and gain insights that us others could not, right? I didn't work in all of them and you would just be baffled but, but, uh, by uh, what people could come up with. And I think this is extremely, extremely important. So it's, um, I really, uh, it's really interesting that you started off this way. Did you know for, about it from someone? Did someone just tell you, hey, this is it? Or was it just the HBR article? No, I think, again, as, as life taught me, sometimes I was lucky enough to read about some of these concepts and try to kind of 
direct myself in that in that sort of a, a pathway in most cases it was a, a luck a, a, you know a, a show of faith into a direction i'm following and then things connected along the way with this article i think i discovered it after i already i already had experience in the private and ngo sector and in the meantime i kind of built up my public sector experience so it kind of started naturally and i think to be honest i don't think my case is that unique i know many of especially the young people i surround myself with similar age of me and background most of them have at least two sectors covered. So I think this millennial generation had this opportunity to really change job, uh, change jobs a bit more often, uh, be, and have this accepted by employers. And I think it's more we see this more and more, which is uh, tremendously rewarding. I think for everybody, and it brings me also happiness to see more people having this experience. Because as you said, when you work in a company, especially, and you have to give a grant. Uh, usually, you know, usually in a, in a multinational, they will be like, "What? Well, why is does this NGO respond so slow?" They're not, you know, they don't realize we're giving them money. Why are they so unprofessional? And me knowing how an NGO works, it's helpful because I know it's not intentive from, from the NGO to act like this. It's just the way they maybe are used to because of the environment they're, they're usually working in with other NGOs. Same with the public sector. Why does the public sector act so bureaucratic? Some companies would ask. I worked in the public sector enough to realize that it's sometimes, again, as much as they want to move something, they do need the, still, unfortunately, the paperwork to get it approved. So all these small details help um, build strong relationships eventually with the, with the stakeholders uh, involved and also uh, potentially lead to the implementation of a project which otherwise would be potentially dropped because of this initial, uh, uh, let's say, different styles of, of, of work, basically, because this really can put people off and, and drop interesting projects. Otherwise. True. Did it ever felt at any point in your journey so far that maybe you took the wrong opportunity or it's not the right, the right path or it's extremely difficult and you were you backed off and you rethought what you were doing? Never, because uh, to be honest, I mean, yeah, there's even now if I would have to advise somebody to, you know, people ask me, young people that I, I help out sometimes, they ask me, what would be a great degree now? And I say, for sure, business computer. Com- com- uh, coupled with computing science. It's the best degree you need because you, you learn the technical skills and then you potentially learn how to start the business. Uh, for me, there's the sort of uh, coding skills were is something I still develop, but it was nothing, not, never a passion of mine. So I would have never been able to force myself to do it, even though I know that this would be a great advice to, to give now and, and I, I happily share it with people. But I have no regrets because I literally just followed what I kind of like to do as much as things were harder because if I would have you know, chosen a more clear the clear sort of a path like a doctor or an architect or a lawyer as much as all these pathways have difficulties they're definitely a bit more straightforward than it is in my line of work in which i jump from sector to sector i'm still trying to find exactly what sort of niche i want to work in future of work might be it as we were discussing you never know but still even this is something so futuristic still in many in many ways it is not a clear path so i definitely chose the uncharted path for my career and i'm happy with it so there's still, I feel, this battle between the classical path and there are still companies and I work with some that are quite old that are still building career paths for their employees. And on the other side, you have these uncharted paths, which I, which I find extremely uh, nice because you can do a lot of things, as you said, and then look forward and put them all together and it comes something new and innovative will come out of it. Right, then you have uh, jobs like uh, head of remote, for example, in uh, GitLab, right, which is very, very mm-hmm. rare, or other jobs uh, similar to that. For those who are still 
maybe thinking between a clear path, right? Maybe having one or two jobs their entire life or even one single career their entire life. And those that, that um, are working, uh, looking for the uncharted one, do you have any advice, anything that you would tell them that could help them along the way? To the people looking for the uncharted path or to the people for both who of them? Both. Um, for, first of all, for both, the, the clear lesson is it's impossible to have just one career. That's already, I think, almost proven to, to I would say, to be impossible for, for our generations coming up. Um, so at least two careers, I think, even if you're a doctor, you might spin off into something, as, you know, you might be a generalist doctor, but then you might spin off into something within medicine that is connected to it. So I definitely think this is something we should all prepare for. And I think if you, potentially, if you want to be successful, I think both ways are good. You can specialize, you can be a generalist, both ways work. But I, I think what we should all strive to achieve is this sort of a T-shaped individual, if you if you want to be a bit more visual, um, which is a combination between a generalist and a specialist. So you do have a specialty, it might be marketing as it is in my case in communications, as it is the sort of a vertical axis of the T, but then the horizontal one, uh, the horizontal one is the sort of um, generalist knowledge. You do have to dapple into different fields, regardless, even if you're a doctor, you have to know a bit of psychology, so you know how to treat your patients better, not just sometimes for a physical ailment, but also sometimes for a for emotional one, potentially, obviously, to some degree of treatment. You cannot be a specialist, probably. But the idea is to definitely have a, a couple of other fields, at least, in which you have a, at least a, an average, if not above average, knowledge, because that's where you can connect dots in ways that, you know, uh, could inspire the world, like Elon Musk did. You know, most of the great examples of entrepreneurs and innovators nowadays are exactly people who have this T-shaped, uh, polymath-style, Leonardo da Vinci-style interest into, you know, many fields, but some capacity and some skill set at the high level in, in one one field or maximum two. And in Elon Musk's case, is engineering for sure. That's how he started. Uh, and I would say now, after especially so many years in companies, started business. These would be his two main skills, business and computing science, engineering, software engineering. But then his interests range from, you know, uh, building tunnels to building cars to rockets. That's quite comprehensive, I would say. And he uses all these skills to, to launch all these companies. So, yeah. And I'm so I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, this is something I've been touting for a long time. Uh, it's no longer the time for one career, but maybe two or three and sometimes even, even four. Uh, and I've had people on this podcast who've changed uh, careers at 60. 50, 60, and they were bold enough and courageous enough to take a different route, learn something new, even go to school, and then start all over again. Feel it as juniors, get that enthusiasm, and just just keep it going and use the, the skills that they have gained before, for sure. Uh, David, I was very interested when I looked at uh, Humans of EU, the European Heroes uh, project that uh, that you've created. How come you started that? What was behind it? Before I answer your question, I, I forgot to mention, maybe regarding the other question, the, the sort of easy way to go about this kind of career choice is to not necessarily think about, oh, I'm a lawyer now and I have to think about a different career, oh, how difficult it is. No, you should just think about developing a passion on the side of your current career, which would help you eventually potentially to spin off into doing that passion full time. And I think this is what we're all, or all, hopefully all of us are trying to, to reach that, not to really do something we love if it's not already the job we're doing, because it might be the case. Uh, and work, working on the side to, to develop that passion. And now to answer your question, European Heroes started as a as a, as every I think good idea uh, out of nothing. We were literally uh, a bunch of young Europeans taking part in a uh, let's, some sort of a hackathon in Brussels, in which we were put together 
uh, randomly to come up with ideas to inspire young Europeans to to be more involved in society, to uh, go out to vote, and other other let's say objectives that we generally had from the organizers. And it was all by chance that I met a videographer, a journalist, and myself with my marketing skills. We realized that we had these different skills, but all of us, when we when we met, we pretty much pitched the same idea: How do we get young people to be more involved? So we we found this quite unique the fact that we had the same question and, and sort of vision, but then we came at it from different angles. So then we started working together and European Heroes was born with a desire to inspire young people to be more civically engaged, basically, in, in one sentence. The project is currently on, on hold, I have to mention, because since we started two years ago, all of us are going now through a, a bit, let's say, transitionary paths. I started the master's, changed jobs. My two colleagues were involved in different projects, which were uh, quite time consuming. So we stopped it for now. Now COVID also would, would have made it probably stop a bit. Uh, but the idea is potentially to continue and to have this sort of a menu of civic engagement opportunities on the site so that anybody, young person, uh, a more experienced person who wants to be involved in, a, in the society he lives in or she lives in, to find on the site a menu of a potential opportunities, which are, they already grouped the opportunities for being involved on, on the sustainable development goals, the SDGs. So you can choose quality education and you find a few examples from Europe of heroes that as we like to call them, young Europeans who started something in quality education. Same for gender equality, another topic. So you would have a menu uh, as a, you know, for a person who wants to be involved but doesn't know where to start. You have there a menu of, of things you can potentially start yourself or join. So that's the, the vision for it. Where are you, are you restarting this? It's a, it's a great initiative with some amazing stories that I've read on the site. It's a good question because I think for me, it's always a matter of not pushing things too much. And I, I, I realized that especially when all of our paths, my, myself and my two co-founders were kind of going in different directions a bit in terms of what we were doing on a daily basis, it was definitely a, a time to take a break from it. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's not working the same with the same success. So I'm waiting for a good momentum again to see either if with the same two co-founders or with uh, another group of people because we're all about sharing. It's not our idea. It's kind of Europe's idea. People who want to be engaged to see if we want, if we can involve other people who, who share our passion, but at the same time maybe would have more time and focus to dedicate to this initiative, since that's what that's what I think we were lacking towards the end of 2019 when we decided to stop it. You know, different priorities in our life basically now that stopped us from for giving this, as you said, cool project the attention it deserves. You have built quite a lot of communities, whether you worked in Google or with European Huber, uh, uh, Heroes or uh, with Global Shapers, wherever you, you've been, you've built communities. And this is a new skill that maybe we didn't talk about it um, uh, a long time ago, right? We didn't have to build those, those communities and rely on them to make things happen. How do you build them? How do you go I about I wouldn't say I built all of them in a sense because the Global Shapers is a community I, I've joined, same with ISEC, Rotaract, and many other communities. I think in most cases I, I join communities and I kind of okay. work as an intrapreneur and build within them smaller packs of you know, communities of motivated people doing things. European Heroes is maybe a community I started building and a few others uh, along the way. Uh, but in, to, to answer your question, then how do you build them is to just find the people in your, in your surrounding or nowadays with online tools around Europe or the world who share the same uh, passion and drive towards a common objective. And then, you know, using a bit of my, in this case, my leadership skills to kind of take the lead and kind of guiding them towards this, the same goal. Um, so it's again, pretty much just going with the flow, not forcing things too much, because if you have to force them, I try that as well. But even now in this uh, 
a pandemic time, I, I was discussing with a few people about ideas of startups, and I saw that the direction is, or the, the energy is not where it should be, so I didn't push it more than it should be pushed. When I see the energy is there, I also push even more so we can push the, the whole project forward. So, yeah, I think it's, it's adapting again to the context. And in and, and the communities I was part of and that I didn't create myself, I was just either recruited or invited to. It's a matter of, again, finding the sort of people within the community which you gel the best with and, and work with them to, to kind of develop intra-community projects, so to say. Obviously, in some of these communities as a leader, as we discussed before, you have a more, uh, let's say, objective role in which you cannot choose sides. You have to kind of make sure everybody's happy and so on. But in communities I'm just a member in, I just choose the, the sort of a, a group that I'm more connected to and work with them to, do, to build a project together. How do you keep them engaged and connected? That's what I uh, what I find and I hear that it's very difficult, especially when you do this uh, online, because it's if you are the leader and you always keep uh, you are the one that builds the engagement. It's a bit when you when you retract and you are in the background. Maybe sometimes these communities don't work as well because you're not there to to motivate and engage and and all of that. So how do you make that shift from? one to another, right? Leading them, building them, even the, the small communities, intra the big communities, right? With For smaller projects. And then making them work even if you're not there. I think this is a skill I'm still working on. It's definitely something I don't master yet. It's still a challenge, I think, especially. I did notice now, as you said, with the transition to fully online meetings, we had recruitment going on in March for the Global Shapers. We recruited some amazing young people who never had a chance to meet in person. Funny enough, they were obviously a bit more enthusiastic to, to join all the meetings and maybe, uh, I would say paradoxically enough or funny enough, they were the, the most engaged, but the people who are otherwise more used to the community, they were probably a bit more disengaged because of this online format, as we all are when we, had, when we have classes online or meetings online at work, it's, it's definitely less engaging. I don't know, I don't have an answer to this. I can definitely say when we hopefully go back to this new normal, the secret to building engaged community or the secret I kind of across or stumbled upon is uh, making them as informal as possible or, or having this informal component really well built in or, or, or developed through team buildings or any sort of social activities because regardless if you're managing an NGO or if you're in a company if you don't have this personal connection with, with the people you work with it's never gonna you know have the, you're never gonna have the same impact if you're just working as uh, people delivering the task if there's no sort of a, a bond between the team players so that's what I try to do with the with the shapers and with other NGOs uh, I was involved in to kind of have this informality and, and sort of uh, I think there's a really nice phrase that Google uses when 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 they train employees in creating a, a psychological safety, which uh, anybody can say anything and share their views and and sort of debate about them. Nothing is no question is too stupid to be asked. Uh, everything's to be discussed. So uh, I think this. Is, is what you would expect in a group of friends going for, for a beer. I think this is the ideal scenario to be in, regardless if you're in the sort of a team at work or team in an NGO, of having this sort of a full confidence in, in the fact that you can say something and share your views and also that people will take them, um, you know, not objectively in a sense, you know, you, and be really open to any sort of a debate or criticism. Yeah, that's, that's a very, very interesting. Um... What's next for you? What's next for David? What do you care about? And how do you want to use your current knowledge, your current skills and your influence for something greater? 
as we were discussing even before this this podcast uh, and this whole uh, debate we had about leadership and and, uh, and NGOs and so on, future of work is a topic I'm particularly passionate about, and I kind of gave it the name now recently, maybe for a year or two, but I've been passionate about this for quite some time now because if I look back in my my early days in my career um, and even in my volunteer work, I was always passionate about how do you help other people, young people especially, because they were the age group I was most closely related to, to thrive, regardless if it's in their personal context or professional context. And over the years, I've saw, I've seen how the challenges have uh, ri- risen exponentially. There's so many more challenges now to a young person, either starting university or, or work, that there's definitely a, a room for, for support, that somebody who, as I said, in my case, I was lucky enough to work in different fields, to change different jobs, to go through all sorts of rejections and interviews, I definitely think there's a lot of input I can provide and help some of the, the, the newer people in the in the line of work, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think nowadays with what we've seen after COVID-19, the future of work dimension is impacting not just young people who are definitely hit probably the hardest, is any generation and every sort of age group. So I definitely want to be involved more in this area and, and kind of look at how technology, in particular automation and AI, artificial intelligence, the technology which powers automation in most cases, impacts our line of work because if you think about work work is the sort of a um, middle of the of the of the discussion because you have the future of education there involved the future of skills as well but work is where they all coalesce you know the skills you build throughout your life or through education end up usually in your line of work so uh, that's why this is hopefully will be my my niche in the coming years i say hopefully because we still as i said earlier in the discussion is still a really small niche unfortunately especially in europe there's not a lot of debate uh, before COVID, there was literally no debate about this topic. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing because when I found you, I was like, wow, I stumbled upon your profile on LinkedIn. I said, I'm glad somebody else is doing it because there's definitely not enough debate on this super important topic. There, there, there isn't. And uh, with the pandemic, it's even uh, less interest. So uh, it's, uh, it's a funny thing. I am, uh, as, as you are, I'm passionate about it because I think, I don't think the issue will be with us knowledge workers. I think uh, where we will struggle is uh, those people working in the front line, right? All the all the cashiers, all the taxi drivers, and everyone who's there and whose jobs will be impacted right now. And there isn't a big answer to that. I'm not sure. Have you heard of Fathom? Um, not really. If it's uh, not from a cartoon, because I think in cartoons I did hear about the Marvel <laughs> stories or something. Uh, I'm not sure where they got the name from. I will, I will, I can ask them. Uh, it's an Australian company, and they use uh, AI and big data. They work together with companies and governments to pretty much project what the different uh, jobs will look like in the future and what are the skills that are transferable. So, for example, one of the discussions is with accountants transferring towards cybersecurity. Because from their analysis, right, the, the knowledge is lacking, right? Definitely they will need to get the knowledge, but the processes behind the thinking, behind the analysis, the kind of consulting they do seems to be extremely similar, right? So at the moment when, when ERPs and accounting systems will, will uh, be here and replace them, that's, that is one of the directions they can go because cybersecurity is, is growing. And mm. they do that with all the, all the existing jobs, right? Some of them are automatable, some of them are augmentable, and some of them might never be, might never be changed. But I will send you a link. I think you'll find it uh, very, very interesting. Please do. And uh, if, you, if, you share, if, you, if you share this uh, insight, for me, one of the, or two of the, the most uh, interesting insights I've came across over the past few weeks where, where I had a bit of time to research the latest reports from various companies or organizations on this topic 
Well, first of all, uh, as you said, is the cashier jobs and clerk admin roles which are going to be targeted, which are not necessarily the sort of a, a bottom of the of the food chain jobs. Uh, because we all probably seen uh, on YouTube on how robots are still struggling with some of the most basic things, physical things, such as opening a door, making a sandwich. These sort of jobs, which are still kind of unfortunately, I would say, maybe it's not a nice way to put it at the bottom of the food chain, but the sort of a low-income jobs who are uh, potentially done by somebody part-time, not their sort of a career uh, goal, I would say. These are jobs who are still safer than a job for somebody who had already a, a decent education in a career and is working maybe in a law firm as an intern or a clerk in a, in a small shop. So it's pretty scary to think about this as a first insight and that the middle jobs will be targeted maybe more than lower skill jobs and high skill jobs. And the second insight, which I found even more fascinating, is that there's no, we have no choice as companies, as, as people, employees and companies. Automation is coming. It's here. And a study from MIT uh, Technology Review found out that actually companies who don't automate uh, and companies who do automate, they, they, they will still fire people. Because those who automate first, they're going to fire some people, maybe out of 10 people, fire six and retrain the four to, to, to work with the robots that the, they, they replace the people with. Uh, however, the companies who don't automate and they're like, oh, we want to keep the personnel on, because of the increase of productivity of their competitors who did decide to automate, the others who didn't uh, jump on the bandwagon fast enough will be forced because of um, lack of profits to still fire people and eventually turn to robots. So it's unfortunately a future we have to prepare ourselves for as employees and companies. And I don't think we all realize this. Definitely, I think it's a minority of people who probably read that report. But I find it quite scary that there's literally no choice to to take that will still help everybody keep a job. It's just not an option, basically. Yeah, for, for sure. And I've been talking with a lot of people it's in, and uh, one of the latest has been with admin desk uh, clerk kind of jobs. And mm -hmm. the feeling is that these are very human jobs and uh, interaction requiring jobs and that they will never go away. And in my mind, I'm thinking maybe that's still true for four or five or six years. Uh, but uh, look again at uh, what MSN did, what Microsoft, right? They, they replaced everyone writing articles. They replaced them with uh, AI. It's just a bot uh, placing articles uh, online, right? They, they don't have to write them, but they, they uh, find them, curate them and, and put them online. And I think it's going to be the same with a lot of jobs. I've been speaking with uh, taxi drivers and asking them how they feel about it. And uh, most of them told me, oh, this is not, this is never going to happen. Who will ride with us? Uh, who will ride in a car without a taxi driver? <laughs> who is going to get on? And I was like, um, I, I'm okay with it. <laughs> I, I don't mind. Uh, and I don't mind just jumping in a car and uh, being driven around because I'm a very poor driver. <laughs> I think this is a nice, uh, it's a nice discussion and it's, uh, it's good uh, if uh, someone else is uh, joining the club of uh, discussing about the future or the evolution of work, depending how you, how you look at it. I think the skills you mentioned of potentially the clerk, or I like to make the comparison between a restaurant, uh, um, how do you call them? Um, not clerk in this case, it's a it's somebody, a a server server in a restaurant or potentially even a bartender. If the restaurant is high-end or premium, where people expect the sort of a added value even in terms of customer support or customer service, the, the, the sort of human jobs will re remain relevant. Uh, um, a server or, or somebody working at the cash desk in a fast food, nobody really cares. It's a fast food restaurant. They just want to go in and out. So again, even within the same job industry, some jobs will be eliminated probably in the few years, while others will be even paid more premium because this is why some people go to a restaurant because of the stuff. 
So it's a mixture of these two, but I find it, yeah, we, we need probably another few hours to really go <laughs> into this sure. topic. <laughs> For sure. But I think it boils down to, to the things that we've been discussing. I think people should think about different careers in their lives because at some point, even if you're not automated, your company will be sold and you'll be left out of job. And maybe when you realize that you're without a job, that you didn't really like it and you want to do something else, and it's maybe too late to think about it at, at that point in time. So having a few options doesn't hurt and having a, a few options gives meaning to what you're doing. It keeps you engaged. And even, even if at some point we will mostly stay at home and maybe work, I don't know, two, three, four hours a day or a week, so way less than we are working right now, it still gives you something to do instead of just uh, watching uh, TV. For sure. I think keeping your options open and never putting all your eggs into one basket is something I learned from a young age from my grandmother. Never put all your eggs into one basket. Keep them spread out to increase your chances of success. Definitely. We are talking about uh, advice right now from your grandmother. Any advice or learnings or guidance that you have for the people who are listening to this and maybe are young and uh, are just building their careers? Well, this is definitely good advice to end with, to, to kind of, you know, spread yourself, not too thin. Obviously, you don't want to spread yourself in too many directions, but have at least, you know, two or three options, of, if not career, at least of potential occupations, because you can be a uh, um, somebody working in a law firm or a, a accountancy, uh, but still have a passion for photography, which can be uh, can become a part-time gig eventually, you know? So even just developing and nurturing a passion outside the work could potentially be that second career you really, really need to have as a backup. I say need because as we both agreed, it's not going to be the case you can just depend on one job throughout your life. So it's this is for sure. So people should be both, uh, I would say, accept this fact and prepare for it in any way they can. And this would be it. Just Kindle one of your passions. Dedicate that one hour a day when you're most productive, not just to work, maybe the first hour of the day for some people, but to developing that one skill that is now a passion, but it might be become your full-time job in the future. David, thank you very much for your insights today and thank you for an amazing chat. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you for the invitation. We should do this again. <laughs> yes. And then next time we talk about the future of work. Oh, yeah. So we can delve deeply into this topic. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thanks so much for today. Thank you. All the best. Ciao.